0: You've still got ta- time to change places if, if you see someone you'd prefer to be sitting with. So are you, are you happy? All right, you can be seated. Well, thank you to your pastors, Lottie and Lauren, for having me in your church. It's a real privilege to be with you and uh, to see rain. I'm from Townsville in North Queensland, where we have 300 days of sunshine a year. But uh, of course, I know you really need the rain here. So praise God, a new prime minister, rain. And me preaching, I reckon all your dreams have come true. So it would be good. Uh, if we've not met, my name is James. I'm married to Samantha. Uh, we met at Bible College. Uh, I'm an ex-journalist who became a pastor. She was an ex-police officer who became a Bible College student. We met in Bible College because I was her lecturer. Now, they had rules about students dating other students But there were no rules about faculty dating students. There are now rules about faculty dating students. So if you're taking notes, write this down. It'll serve you well. Do stuff before they make rules to stop you doing it. That will help you greatly in life. And so we've been married 20 years. We have two children, twin boys, Yosef and Binyam. People ask us, why did you give your children such strange names? To which I reply, we didn't give our kids any names at all. Those were the names they arrived with. Uh, We adopted our children from Ethiopia when they were six months old, born to a 15-year-old homeless girl who was positive with HIV. She gave birth to them and then disappeared. Uh, We've tried unsuccessfully to find her, but we always honor her because she gave our boys what we could not. She gave them a life, and it's been our privilege to give them what she could not, a family, love, and Xbox. (laughs) And uh, of those three, which do you think our kids are most grateful for? Xbox. So that's them. Uh, They're 13. Very handsome, aren't they? And so if you've got daughters aged anywhere between 12 and 25, they are available for the right payment. People say, why did you adopt from Africa? Well, a couple of reasons. Firstly, no one with my genetic makeup will ever win gold at an Olympic athletic event. But how many of you know Africans can run? And so in about 10 years' time, you should expect to see a Macpherson claiming gold for Australia, or as my kids like to call it, Australiopia. And the second reason we adopted from Africa is, um, well, look at me. I'm, I'm like a skinny white guy. I have no rhythm whatsoever, but black folk can move. And so by virtue of adoption, our family now has what all the young people call swag. Do you know, Someone actually asked us, so, so, so do the boys know they're adopted? I'm, I'm not just from Queensland, I'm from North Queensland. The humidity does strange things to people's brains up there. I looked at this person and said, They're adopted. Not completely stupid. <laughs> Joseph got into bed with us one morning. He said, Daddy, we're not the same. I said, What do you mean? He said, I'm chocolate. I said, well, What am I? He looked at me for a long time and said, mm, You're vanilla. We had a holiday at Daydream Island in the North Queensland, just off the coast, and I got badly sunburned. He came to me unprompted and said, Dad, you're not vanilla, you're strawberry. So we've got the whole Neapolitan thing happening in our family, every flavor. When we go out shopping, people still to this day look at our family in a weird sort of quizzical way. And uh, people will come up to our kids, though they are standing only a few meters away from us, but very concerned about their welfare. They'll say, are you boys all right? Where's your mummy and daddy? And I love the look on people's faces when our kids point at us as though, isn't it obvious? We're with them. We just smile politely unless our kids are misbehaving, in which case we look back at these people and say, what, do they look like our kids? I've never seen them before in my life. (laughs) That's the truth. You know, we are at a shopping center just a couple of weeks ago, and, and these two are going feral. Because here's the thing about adoption. Anything good, that's nurture. Anything bad, that's biology. That's not my fault. See, you can't do that with your kids. Your kids are all your fault. <laughs> but my kids, well, anything bad, that's, that's nature. You can't change genetic makeup. That's not my responsibility. So we're at this shopping center, and they're going feral, and, um, and my wife is just beside herself, and I'm just trying to enjoy a coffee with my wife. And I said to her, turn your back, pretend they're not ours, ignore them. No one will ever join the dots. <laughs> you can't do that, but I can. Adoption is the way to go We had a uh, preacher in our church A guy called Reggie Dabbs I don't know if you've heard of Reggie Dabbs But if you've not He's an African American man But not just African American He's a large African American man He's speaking at our church And so I said to our kids Church is going to be awesome We've got a chocolate preacher And so they were pretty excited We got to church And they, they were like Dad where is he And at that moment Reggie Dabbs A big African American man He walked through the doors of the church And my son looked at me Looked at Reggie Dabbs Looked back at me And said Dad That's a lot of chocolate (laughs) So, that's our family. Very politically incorrect, which is how we like to roll. That's Joe in the white and Ben in the camo gear. They've both just been selected for a development squad for basketball. They're 13, but uh, they've chosen 30 boys. 13 years of age who the youngest you can play for Australia is under 17s and they've just chosen 30 boys who they believe have the potential to play under 17s for Australia for special coaching and so uh, we have two churches um Calvary Christian Church and Townsville Basketball uh, we tithe to both <laughs> and we are uh, five days a week at basketball and uh, seven days a week in the house of the Lord all right you ready for the word Should we get into it or should I just keep talking about my kids? (laughs) All right, we'll get into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person here. Whether it's our first time in church or whether we've been here a million times. All of us have come today with different struggles, different thoughts, different things confronting us this week. And yet all of us are greatly loved of God. So Father, today I just pray that your word would do us good. Help us to be better people. Because we're in the house of faith this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Isaiah fifty four, verse one says this. Listen to it. Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. Isn't it interesting that when we come to church we spend the first you know fifteen, twenty minutes singing? It's unique to the Christian faith. It doesn't matter what country, what culture, what people group you go to, what style or denomination of church. When you go to church, the first thing we do is we sing. When Moses led the people across the Red Sea miraculously into freedom, they sang. When angels appeared in the sky to announce the birth of Christ, they sang. It's something unique to the Christian faith that we are continually singing. In fact, God himself says, sing a new song. Isn't that amazing? I love how great thou art. It's a wonderful old hymn. But even God gets bored with our songs sometimes and says, would you sing something new? It's not that he's bored with the song. It's that God wants something coming out of our heart that is continually fresh because like a diamond, you can view a diamond from so many angles. You never get the whole of it. And Jesus is so magnificent that you can view him from so many angles that God says, sing a new song. Don't live on last year's revelation or, or what happened to you five years ago. But there should be continually a flow from our hearts about the wonder and majesty of Jesus. And so, so the Lord comes to this woman. And let me read it for you again. He says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not labored with child. I know some of you come to church and think, Why do we have to sing? How long is the singing going to go for? Here we go again. The drums are too loud. Some of us prefer to get to church after the fast stuff is finished. You know, we prefer the quieter singing and then it's closer to the, the, the preaching, which is what we really came for. And God comes to this woman. And he says to her, sing. This passage introduces us to a woman who's got no child. But it's not just that she has no child. Here's the problem. She can't have children. She's what they call sterile, infertile, barren. To be barren in that culture, you have to understand, was to be cursed. It means that as a woman, she was unable to fulfill her primary social role. Forgive me, feminists, but in that culture, a woman's primary role was to give her husband a son. Not only could she not give her husband what she was supposed to, but having no offspring, she would be left uh, with no one to care for her in her old age, in a society that had no social security safety net. To be barren, therefore, was to be an object of ridicule and scorn. The Bible records how Hagar made life intolerable for the childless Sarah. How Penanah tormented the infertile Hannah day after day after day. Rachel prayed this prayer. She said, God, give me children or kill me. For a woman in that culture to be barren was to be considered of little value and little worth. It meant you had no future and no hope. And to this woman, God says, sing. Has God ever seemed indifferent to your fate? Has God ever seemed unmoved by your problems? Has God ever seemed distant when you needed him close? Passive when you desperately needed him to do something in your situation? To this barren woman, tormented by her neighbours, tortured by her infertility, the exhortation to sing must have sounded cruel and callous and even cold, especially coming from God. How do you sing when life has given you no music? And it's not just that God tells her to sing, that's cruel in and of itself, but it's the way God speaks to her. Listen to it again. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not laboured with child. A friend would never use the word barren in her presence. It's quite politically incorrect. A friend would be sensitive to her situation and talk about something else like, isn't it great we've got rain? But God addresses her as barren and then, as if she doesn't perfectly understand the implications, God outlines it for her. You who have not born, you who have not labored with child. Here's my question. What kind of God is this? Does he not care about her situation? My wife and I, we we waited six years to adopt children. We were unable to uh, conceive naturally and so we adopted. And the worst times during those six years were when other people... Other people who'd been waiting considerably less time than we had been waiting uh, were allocated children ahead of us. And, uh, and we would say, how, how can they be allocated children when we've been waiting longer, in, in some cases much longer, and we were better people than they were. <laughs> it wasn't a joke, we were better people. We loved Jesus, they didn't. We went to church, they didn't. We were on our first marriage, they weren't. We tithed every Sunday. They didn't. We put Jesus first. They didn't even know Jesus. And yet they're being blessed ahead of us. Yeah. We would go to their celebration parties and we'd smile and we'd give gifts. And, uh, but inwardly, we'd be in agony. We'd be saying things like, what about us? Where, where's our children? And our prayers during those times would sound like this. Don't you know? our situation? Don't you realize how long we've been waiting or is it just that you don't care? Why aren't you doing anything? Why is nothing happening for us? Have you ever felt like God's not answering your prayers? You know there's something worse than feeling like God's not answering your prayers and it's feeling like God doesn't even care about your prayers, like God is unmoved by your situation, unconcerned at your concerns and unfeeling in the face of your pain sing barren woman you who have not born you have not labored with sing how can I sing and how can you tell me to sing I come into this church and they're all happy the girl leading worship annoys me because she's always happy every week if she knew what life was really like you want to talk about real life you walk a mile in my shoes lady there's people who come into churches like that every Sunday And they look at the band and they're all so fake with their smiles and they're all singing like this. And we think, how can they sing? They don't know what I'm going through. If they'd had the week I'd had, they wouldn't be so quick to come on, encourage me to sing. Our family loves football. Uh, We never miss a game. And uh, if we can't be there live, we'll watch it on television. And if we can't be there live or watch it on TV, we'll set the recorder and then we'll get home and we'll watch the replay. Well, one day last year, we were out all day. We couldn't get to the stadium. We couldn't watch it live on television. But I told Joseph and Benjamin, we'll record it when we get home. We'll have snacks and we'll watch it. And uh, so we're pretty excited to get home that night and watch the game. But, but unfortunately, during the course of the day, I saw a news bulletin that uh, gave the result. And my kids didn't see it, but I saw it. And the news bulletin told how my team had been getting smashed the entire game. It looked hopeless. And then in the last quarter, My team stages a miraculous comeback and wins a terrific victory. Now, when we sat down to watch the replay, I didn't tell Joe and Ben that I already knew the result. And so we're watching the game and and our team is falling further and further and further. We are getting smashed and Joe and Ben are going crazy they're screaming at the television, they're yelling at the umpire, they're kicking the cat, and we don't even own a cat, they're kicking other people's cats. That's how angry they are about this situation. And then suddenly, in the middle of all the yelling and screaming, Joe and Ben noticed something. You know what they noticed? They noticed that I wasn't getting upset. That they actually turned and noticed that I was pretty much unmoved by our team's plight. And then suddenly, It happened. One of them turned to me and with accusing voice said, Dad, we're getting smashed. Don't you even care? Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Here's what the Bible says. God sees two things simultaneously. He sees you in your embryonic state and on your funeral day when they're reading your obituary. He sees the beginning and the end at once. He sees me as I am and he sees me as I'm going to be and all at the same time. That's why Revelation 21 verse 6 says that one of the names of Jesus is the Alpha Alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. My wife says I'm the ultimate alpha male. I begin a lot of things. But the Bible says that God knows the beginning and the end at the same time. Here's the point, you have gotta catch this. When God tells the barren woman to sing, he's not being cruel. He's speaking from the point of view of someone who already knows how the story ends. God knows something she doesn't know. Here's a thought, maybe God knows something you don't know. Because last time I checked, you weren't God. You know, to become a Christian isn't to subscribe to a whole lot of religious views. It's not to promise that you're going to get on the straight and narrow. To become a Christian is simply to admit, I'm not God, you are. See, here's the thing. If Jesus is God, who's not? Hashtag awkward because I've been living my whole life like I am. To become a Christian isn't to get on the straight and narrow, subscribe to a whole lot of doctrinal beliefs, promise never to swear or chew gum ever again. To become a Christian is to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, I'm not. So I'm going to stop behaving like I am. God knows something she doesn't know. When God refers to her barrenness as though it's not a big deal, it's because it's not a big deal. Because he's already seen her as she will be, with an abundance of children. Joe and Ben, my boys, were agitated about the football score, but I wasn't. Because I'd already seen how the game finished. I knew how it ended. I knew that we'd come out on top, so I'm not banging my head against the television or looking for a cat to kick. Although if I saw a cat, I would kick it because... And our team is falling further and further and further behind. And, and, and I know we're losing, but I also know that's just now. I know how it finishes. We win. But my boys don't know that. All they know is that their father is not reacting. And so they start accusing me of not caring. They start accusing me of misleading them about how much I love our team. They question my love, they question my passion, they question my commitment, they question my faithfulness. But the truth is, I do care. I love our football team. Don't misinterpret my passivity as a lack of concern. Maybe I know some stuff, Joe and Ben, that you don't know. Here's my point Don't you interpret God's lack of action in your life as a lack of concern? Has it ever occurred to you, maybe God knows some things that you don't know? Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Now watch this. Listen to what God says. He says, I'm God and there's no other. Well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? You can't have two gods. By definition, God has to supersede everyone and everything. There can only be one God. Okay, That's why if God played a round of golf, he would get 18. God would never score 19 in a round of golf because then technically it would be possible for someone to beat him and for him to be second. God, by definition, can never be second because if God is second, then something or someone else is God. God is always number one. If God drove in a Formula One Grand Prix, he would start from pole and lead every lap. Because God, by definition, can never be second. So God says, I am God, there is no other. Okay, we understand that. Then he says, I am God and there is none like me. What's he saying? He's saying too often we think God is like us. We imagine that God is just a cosmic version of ourselves. And he says, you've got to understand, I'm nothing like you. I am so far above and beyond you, we're not even comparable. And then he says, let me tell you one way in which God and ourselves Are completely and utterly different. Listen to what he says. He says, There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. So so here's what he says You've got to understand something about humanity. Humanity exists in time and space. So we don't know the end of a thing until the end of a thing. But God isn't like you and I. He stands outside of time and space and he sees the beginning and the end all at the same time. So if God doesn't seem flustered by your situation, it could be that God's not flustered by your situation. (laughs) Maybe he sees beyond, past, further than your current situation. If God seems indifferent to your circumstance, it might be because he's looking at it from a different stance. The new. The woman in Isaiah 54 can see her present barrenness, but God can see her future family. Focused on her present, the barren woman is distraught, but focused on her future, God's excited. Focused on her present, the barren woman thinks God's call to sing is cruel, but focused on her future, God's simply declaring the end from the beginning. Things that are not yet done, but that will be. We assume God's lack of action is a negative, a sign that he's either unaware of our problems or worse, unconcerned and doesn't care. What I'm saying to you this morning is you need to reinterpret God's lack of action in your life as a sign that your present situation just doesn't bother him. Not because he doesn't care, but because he's seen the news bulletin and he knows how it ends and he knows it's going to be okay. It's not that God is unconcerned about you. He's unconcerned about your present situation that's a big difference because he knows the final score he knows how it ends he's seen the great comeback you're going to make before you even begin it we get upset that God doesn't seem upset we get offended because God doesn't seem offended we get angry because God doesn't seem angry in John chapter 11 Mary and Martha they come to Jesus and they, they say, Jesus, Lazarus, whom you love, their brother, is dying. He's sick. And they, want, they, they expect that Jesus is going to drop everything and run to Bethany and heal Lazarus. But that's not what Jesus does. Upon hearing that Lazarus, whom he loves, is sick, Jesus dawdles and pretty much just fills in time for a couple of days before even beginning to go to where Lazarus is. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Martha comes to Jesus and says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What she's saying is, Dad, don't you even care? Can't you see our team is losing? I thought you loved this team. Martha says the exact same thing as Mary. They had expected Jesus to rush to Bethany, even as they were rushing around. They expected Jesus to panic, just like they were panicking. But but you know, um, when Jesus didn't rush and didn't panic, they interpreted it as a sign that Jesus didn't care let me ask you a question do you really want a God who's rushing around nervously and agitated would that make you feel better would it make you feel better if God was up and down and up and down and up and down off of his throne and chewed his fingernails to the knuckles would it make you feel better if God had developed a nervous twitch because he was so anxious and stressed out about your circumstance is that really the kind of God we want and yet we get offended when he doesn't do it Because we think don't you care and God's lack of action should not be a sign that he doesn't care. It should actually fill us with faith because if God's not concerned maybe he's not concerned and if God's not concerned maybe I don't need to be quite as concerned as I am. Mary and Martha were wrong to interpret Jesus' lack of action as a sign he didn't care. They just didn't know that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was dying, in verse 4 of John chapter 11, it says that Jesus said to himself, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then for the next couple of days, Jesus did nothing. Mary and Martha were looking at the present situation and making accusations against God, but Jesus was looking at the end of the thing and seeing how this sickness was going to result in glory to God. You know, we do the same as Mary and Martha because human nature has not changed in 2,000 years. We look at a present situation and noting that God doesn't seem to be doing anything, we make accusations about his lack of concern and we think, well, if that's what God's like, I'm not going to church anymore. Man, if I had a dollar for every person who's no longer in church because God didn't jump when they did, because God wasn't scared when they were scared, because God wasn't agitated when they were agitated. But if we accept that God loves us, and this is, this is foundational, the first thing we teach kids in, in Sunday school is, "Jesus loves me, this I know." For the but." you know why we do that? Because most things you're never going to know. The truth is, there's so much stuff in life I've got a clue about. there's one thing I know: Jesus loves me. You've got to get that as foundational. Because if Jesus loves me, everything else is solid. But if you start to question God's good intention toward you, everything else is up for grabs then. let me prove it to you. In the book of Genesis, the devil comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them. And what does the devil say? The devil says, did God really say you can't eat from that tree? God knows if you do, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like him. And God doesn't want you to be like him because God's intention toward you is not good. He's trying to keep you small. He's trying to limit you and contain you. God does not have your best interests at heart. And when Adam and Eve started to doubt God's good intent, everything was up for grabs. So so foundational to living a strong, successful life is simply one thing. If you know nothing else, this I know, Jesus loves me. Now, with that as the foundation, if we accept that God loves us, then his apparent lack of concern about our present situation should fill us with confidence. If God seems unconcerned by your circumstance, it might be a sign that he's not concerned by your circumstance because he knows something you don't know. That's cause for faith, not for doubt. Don't leave church because God didn't jump when you got a fright. Rather, be encouraged that God doesn't seem worried. And God loves me, so if he's not worried, maybe that's a sign to have faith that there's nothing really to worry about. If God seems insensitive to your problems, don't be offended. He knows something you don't know. He sees the end of a thing. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the thoughts I have toward you, says the Lord. Notice this, the Bible doesn't say that God's thinking of you. I'm so glad the Bible doesn't say that God's thinking of us. Because you think of me. I go through a situation and say, James, I'm thinking of you. And you know what? That's nice, but it doesn't change anything. It probably makes you feel better. And I, I, I appreciate the text. But the fact that you're thinking of me, doesn't make a scrap of difference to my life. The Bible never says that God's thinking of us. It says his thoughts are toward us. You know, when God thinks, universes are created. The Bible says his thoughts are always drifting toward us and he's working in our life toward an expected end, a future and a hope. We don't see the future, but God does. And that's the future of hope that he's working towards. Let me put it another way. Um, When a sculptor is chiseling a piece of marble, the sculptor sees what the final product will be, right? But of course, the piece of marble doesn't see that. All the piece of marble sees is chips falling to the ground. And all the piece of marble feels is the cold, sharp edge of the chisel hammering away. If the marble could see what the sculptor sees, then the marble would appreciate the process a little bit more and be far less accusatory towards the sculptor. You and I are the marble. And we don't see what the sculptor sees because we can't see the beginning from the end. But we do know the sculptor. Daniel 2 verse 22 says of God, he knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in him. I love that scripture. God knows what's in the darkness. God knows what's round the next bend, over the next crest, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. And light dwells in him. Because God knows what's in the darkness, he calls it as if it were in the light. Or let me put it another way. God defines your present in light of your past, uh, your future, and the future is dark to us, but light to Him. And so He defines our present in light of our future. In Judges chapter six, Gideon is hiding in a hole, terrified of the Midianite army, and God appears to him, hiding in a hole, and says, "You mighty man of valor." So, so at that very moment. Gideon is hiding in a hole, but God is looking weeks into the future when he sees Gideon winning a magnificent victory over the Midianites. And so God says, I'm not going to wait a few weeks to call you mighty because I can see right now both where you're at and where you will be. And so I will define your present in light of your future. And so while he's cowering in a hole, God says, you're mighty in Genesis 17 God comes to a man without children Abram is his name and God says I'm going to call you Abraham because you're going to be the father of a multitude now it's going to be 12 or 13 years before Abraham has one son and it's going to be hundreds of years before there's a multitude but God looks into the future and defines the present in light of what he sees is yet to come God in John comes to a man named Simon Simon means reed shifting unstable untrustworthy unreliable and he says I'm going to call you Peter because you're going to be a rock I'm going to build my church upon you well at that moment Peter is cursing Jesus, denying that he ever knew Jesus, abandoning Jesus in his moment of need. And Jesus says, that's just your present circumstance, but I know who you're going to be. And so we're going to talk about you in light of who you will be, not simply who you are right now. We define ourselves in light of our circumstances. Because that's all we can see. I know that you're raising your child alone, but stop referring to yourself as a single mum, as if somehow that defines you. Talk about yourself in light of who you're going to be, not in light of your present situation, because that's just your present situation. Maybe you've been retrenched. Maybe you've had a diagnosis. There's a million different labels that you could use from your present circumstance. But why would you describe yourself in light of your present when God describes you in light of your future? I remember when I was a youth pastor at our church and um, one of the the, the teenagers in our church, um, mum was going through pretty heavy chemotherapy. And so we're around their house one afternoon visiting, and, and uh, her teenage son had his mates around, and so we're all having afternoon tea. And I don't know if you've ever been in the same room as teenage boys. If you can possibly avoid it, I, I would encourage you to avoid at all costs. Um, but anyway, I, I couldn't avoid them. And so there's these teenage boys. And, and then worse than, than teenage boys being there, one of them spoke. And they should not be allowed, um, but, but they were. And, and this kid, he, he says, Mrs. Davidson. She's there. She's lost all her hair. She's looking frail. She's just got home from another bout of chemo, and he says, "I bet you never thought you'd be a cancer victim." We all looked at the carpet. I prayed. I said, "Jesus, kill that kid." <laughs> hey, don't think badly of me. I didn't pray anything. His parents hadn't prayed a million times. But God didn't zap him, and we just sat there in silence, awkwardly. And then Mrs. Davidson spoke. I'll never forget what she said. She looked at this kid, and very graciously, she said, "Please." Never referred to me as a cancer victim. Cancer is an alien cell in my body that I'm fighting with everything I have. But cancer is not me. There's a lot more to me than the fact that right now I'm battling cancer. So please, don't call me a cancer victim. I don't want this episode to define me. And I thought to myself, that was worth the price of admission. Plus the scones were really good. Because how many people do you know who define themselves in light of their problems? when God doesn't Romans 4 verse 10 says God calls those things which do not exist as if they do when a farmer looks at seed he doesn't see seed he sees wheat and when a farmer looks at wheat he doesn't see wheat he sees a harvest and when a farmer looks at a harvest he doesn't see a harvest he sees cash and when a farmer sees cash he doesn't see cash he sees the house paid off the family fed and the kids clothed so when a farmer looks at seed He doesn't say that seed, he defines it in light of the future. He says, that is my house paid off, my children fed, and my family clothed. You and I need to define ourselves, not in light of what we're currently going through, but in light of what will be. Paul is in prison, but refuses to define himself in terms of his current situation. Listen to it, 2 Timothy chapter 1. For this reason, he says, I also suffer these things. Notice something here. Paul is not in denial, he's in prison, he's suffering Faith is not denial Some Christians think I'm going to be a person of faith And then they spend their whole life chasing unicorns <laughs> Faith is not denial, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick Are no, you sick Faith is not denying your present reality It's denying that your present reality is final That's faith Faith is not living in fairyland Faith is not living in some bubble where we are immune and and ignorant of reality. Get real. The fact is, I'm in prison. But the fact is also, prison is not the end for me. God's given me a future and a hope. Faith is not denial of your present circumstance. It's denial that your present circumstance is the end of the thing. So he goes on to say, nevertheless. So notice what he says. He says, I'm suffering. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I've believed and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. So hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. So Paul is saying in light of God's ability to see the end of a thing, hold fast to a pattern of sound words. In other words, don't start talking as if the present situation is all there is. God's bigger plan is to give you a future and I hope so, speak words that reflect that. Here's another thought quickly as we finish. If God views us From the position of completion, how many of you know we ought to not only view ourselves in light of the future, God says, but we ought to view each other in light of the future that God promises. You know, a lot of people come into this church bloodied by life, bruised by circumstance, beaten up by situations. But the one place in the Hunter region that they can come and not be defined by their present is in the church of Jesus because the God we serve is the Alpha and the Omega. He sees the beginning and the end. And we know how God has seen us. And, and God calls me a saint when I'm still working with my issues. And if you don't think you've got issues, that's your issue. <laughs> but God sees me as a saint when I'm still living like the devil. And when we understand that's what God does for me, we give the same grace to other people. And so I never talk to who my kid is. I talk to who my kid is going to be. I never talk to how the church is. I talk to how the church is going to be. And we should encourage one another in who God says we will be. And don't look at the present because that's just the current situation. But look ahead by faith at what God might do through that young person. Do in that marriage. Do in that person's life. And by faith call out the champion that God determined them to be. A lot of people are going to come into this church broken and bloodied and bruised by circumstance, but the Spirit of God helps us to see them healed when they're still hurting, whole when they're still broken, and functioning as part of the answer when they're still part of the problem. Isaiah 54 verses 1 to 5. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not laboured with child. Next time you think, oh, the musos are faking it. There's so many fakes in this church. God's not saying fake it. He's saying, sing, you who have not born, you've not laboured. We're not in denial. This is not fairyland. This is not an hour and a half of you know, unreality. God says, I know your situation and it's rough and I want you to sing. And here's why. He says, uh, more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. So enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Don't spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. You're going to expand to the right and the left. Your descendants will inherit the nations. Don't be afraid. You won't be ashamed. Neither be disgraced. You're not going to be put to shame. You'll forget the shame of your youth and remember the reproach of your widowhood no more for your maker is your husband. When God tells the barren woman to sing, He's not being cruel. He's encouraging her. Don't allow your present circumstance to define you because it'll be the end of you. But by faith, Begin to believe God. Believe that the sculptor, your maker, can see the end of a thing. And you know what that means? That means the chips of marble scattered around you on the ground are not evidence of your failure. This is part of the process. We've all got off cuts lying around that we kind of hope no one sees, kind of embarrassed about them. And we think, oh man, if God is a sculptor, all those bits of marble that have been hacked off me at different points, it's all part of the process. God is gonna do something amazing. And, and, and that cold, hard edge of circumstance is not just unfair, coincidence, random, life sucks. No, no, God is working all things together for good, for those who know He loves them. And so maybe for the first time in my life, the circumstances don't warrant me singing, but I've just got something in my, I know who God is and I'm persuaded He's able to keep me until that day that He prophesied. I can't see it, but He can. And He says it's good. And so by faith, I'm going to lift my voice this morning and I'm going to sing. Not about what's happening right now, but about where I'm going to be. And as I do it, something rises in my heart, something shifts in my marriage, something changes in my home, something moves in our city. And we start by faith to walk with confidence because He's the Alpha and the Omega. He calls that which is in the darkness as if it were in the light so I can live in light of that rather than just wallow in my circumstance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for good people. People designed to win by Your grace. There's not a one of us that doesn't have challenges and problems, but I thank You that each of us has a great promise. I'm gonna pray two things and I'm gonna hand back to Pastor Lottie. First, I want to pray for every person who says, James, I'm not even right with God. You don't need a preacher to tell you when you're not right with God. You know that in your own heart. I didn't need a church to tell me I wasn't right with God. I knew every January 1st I wasn't right with God because I would determine to be a better person. I didn't need a church to tell me I should be a better person. I've got a wife who, I just just knew I should be a better person. You know the funny thing? Every January 1st I would determine to be a better person and every January 2nd I decided to put it off for another 12 months. Because I knew two things without ever darkening the doors of a church. Number one, I knew I should be better than I was. And number two, I knew no matter how hard I try, I never get it right. I didn't need a preacher to tell me I wasn't right with God. I needed a preacher to tell me it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been or what you've done, God loves you. There's a hope in the future. Just close your eyes for a moment. There'll be people here this morning. You've never made your peace with God. You've never said yes to Jesus. I'm not asking if you've been to church before. I'm not asking if you're a religious or a spiritual person. You may well be. I'm asking, has there ever been a moment in time when you stopped and made a deliberate decision to say yes to Jesus? If you've never made your peace with God, in just a moment, I want to lead you in a real simple prayer and, and, and help you to put things right. Why would you say no to God? As if you'd say, wait next week. Say yes to Jesus. In just a moment, here's how we're going to do it. Not now, but in a second. I'm going to ask you, if you've never made your peace with God, I'm going to ask you to lift your hand up high. I'll see it, acknowledge you, then you can put it down. It just helps me to know who I'm including in this prayer. There's a lot of people here this morning, but I just want to pray for specifically the individuals because you are an individual who's precious to God. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to know who I'm praying for. There'll be other people here. You've already made a commitment to follow Jesus, but you're not walking with God the way you know you ought. And you too need to lift your hand and say, James, that's me. I'm already a believer, but I need to recommit my life to Christ. Would you include me in this prayer? I'll see your hand, acknowledge you. Then you can put it down. And then together, we're all going to pray. But you're going to go home different. Say yes to Jesus. Well, every eye is closed if that's you. James, I know I'm not right with God, but I I want to be. Would you include me in this prayer? Right now, real quick, shoot your hand up high so I can see it. I'll acknowledge you. Then you can put it down. In the row here, God bless you, madam. You can put your hand down someone else real quick. James, would you include me in this prayer? I've got to put things right up the front here. I'd love to pray for you. Good on you. Right up the back there and the back section there. Fantastic. On my left, you can put your hand down. There's four or five people already. Last opportunity. We've got to finish, but I don't want to to miss anyone out. God bless you. I'd love to pray for both of you. Good on you. I don't know who you are, but God's got a great plan and purpose for your life. All right. Absolutely last opportunity. Say one more person before we pray. Don't go home the same way you arrived. Why would you do that? You don't need to. Up the back there, up the back there. God bless you, you're worth waiting for. Why don't we all stand to our feet? I'll lead you in a real simple prayer. We're all gonna pray out loud together, so you're not gonna feel self-conscious. But if you lifted your hand, I want you to pray this prayer from you. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Let's pray out loud together. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for loving me. I know you love me. You proved it when you died on the cross. For my sin, forgive me for all I've ever done wrong. Wash my heart clean. From this day on, I put my faith and trust, not in myself, but in you. Help me, I pray. Father, for every person who raised that hand and prayed that prayer, I pray let today be a turning point in their life. May they never be the same again. Here's a second prayer. Father, for every person here who's facing a difficult situation right now, And we're tempted to think that you don't care. We're wondering if you even know what we're going through. Lord, I thank you. You number the hairs on our head. The Bible says metaphorically, you collect our tears in a bottle. That's how precious our feelings are to you. And we wonder if you care. Lord, help us to interpret your inaction, not as a sign that you don't care and therefore a source of doubt, but as a sign that you're not bothered because you've already seen how it ends and therefore as a source of faith. I thank you that no matter what we are facing today, we can walk with our back straight and our head held high with a song of praise in our mouth because we know whom we've believed and we are persuaded he is able to keep me for that day. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.